of Sassanacs, it's Chelsea back for another episode of the Sassanac Files. This week, I'm discussing the emerald brooch, but before we get to that, I want to take a moment to remind you that you can find the Sassanac Files wherever you listen to podcasts, including iTunes, CastBox, Spotify, Google Podcasts, Amazon Music, iHeartRadio, and many more. Also, if you have not had a chance yet, make sure you head over to follow the Sassanac Files on both Facebook and Instagram to make sure you are up to date on all of the latest and greatest news concerning Outlander, Season 7, and anything Diana Gabaldon cooks up. And with all of that out of the way, let's get into the first of my two-part series on The Emerald Brooch by Catherine Lowry Logan. I just kind of want to give you the 411 on what's going to happen for the Sassanac files over the next few weeks. So we've got part one of the Emerald Brooch that we're going to be discussing today. Next Saturday at 2 p.m. we've got part two. And then I'm taking a couple of weeks off for the holidays. We've got Christmas the week after that and then New Year's the week after that. So on January 7th, at 2 p.m. That's also a Saturday. We are going to be celebrating the 100th episode of the Sassanac Files. That's super exciting for me, a milestone I never in a million years thought that I would get to. We're going to have Angela join us on the Sassanac Files to talk about time travel and all of our time travelers, the time travel theory, any little Diana deets that you know she likes to throw in there, along with anything else time travel related that you could possibly think of, we will probably touch on it and that will be on January 7th. That's kind of what we've got going on in the immediate future. I do plan to take a little bit of a hiatus from Droughtlander Book Club, not too much of a hiatus compared to the time that we normally take a break between books, but I am going to be prepping for my next phase of the Sassanac Files, which will cover the first season of Men in Kilts. In order to do that, I plan to go through Clanlands and take out some of the deets that I thought were prudent to discuss along with the episodes of Men in Kilts since they are topic-themed. Because Clanlands was the initial idea that Sam and Graham had, so I feel like in order to truly get at what they wanted out of the project, we need to kind of dissect Clanlands alongside Men in Kilts. So that is my plan to kind of organize Men in Kilts and Clanlands to go together. So that's going to take some time and that's why I chose to kind of take a step back from Droughtlander Book Club just for a few weeks so that I can get caught up without having the added pressure of having to prepare for book club and prepare for my Men in Kilts episodes, just in case you guys were wondering what's going on with that. Men in Kilts episodes, I believe, are going to start sometime in January, maybe the end of January. I don't have my schedule up in front of me. Pretty soon after the 100th episode is when we'll get started with that. Anyway, I don't think I have anything else. So without further ado, let's get into the Emerald Brooch. Janine says, I love David and Kinsey. Their personalities are so complex, but so compatible. Yes, for sure. Linda, I just love all the books. I'm on my second read of all the books. I'm pretty sure Kinsey is my favorite character. Wow. All right. So a little bit of background on Emerald that we get towards the beginning of the book, kind of just some bridging of the gap between the Emerald Brooch and the previous book, the Sapphire Brooch. David has written a book about 
the entire series of events that unfolded in Sapphire. And I found it interesting that I wouldn't call it a historical romance, but it's definitely a historical fiction with romantic leanings, which I found so interesting given that he's such a tough guy. (laughs) We all know he's a teddy bear at heart, right? So he's written a book and that has come out kind of coinciding with a new book that Jack has written or is writing as they're talking about how he is on a deadline as well. So Jack and David have kind of created this bonding experience. And I think that that is one of my absolute favorite things to come out of Sapphire and experience while reading Emerald is the complete bromance that Jack and David have. They're two of my favorite characters anyway. So to kind of see that relationship blossom and to see how much they razz each other and give each other a hard time and they're really just brothers I really love that. I hesitate to say this, but it honestly seems like Jack is closer to David than he is to Bram at this point in the series. And I don't know whether that's just because we're getting the books from David's perspective, but it really does seem like they have a close relationship, like they're best friends, despite the fact that there's like 10 years age gap between them. They get along so well and they give each other a hard time. And I think that's what they need in their lives is somebody to tell it like it is. You'll hear me talk about Jack and David quite a bit as the next couple of episodes progress because it is one of my favorite elements of this book. But another thing that we really delve into in this book is how close David is to his little godsons, James Cullen and Lincoln. I love this aspect of David's character, honestly, that he is such a, I hesitate to keep saying the word teddy bear, but he's really soft and sensitive. Even though he doesn't really want to admit that to the world, he loves children, he loves animals. These are things that Kenzie really picks up on as well. I love that he describes it as we Lincoln McCabe and Laddie James Cullen Fraser were the stars around which David's life revolved. In lieu of having that special woman in his life, he really throws himself into his relationship with the Frasers and his love of Lincoln and James Cullen, which honestly, as much as I love it, he gives Kevin a hard time for how much time he spends with the boys. So that's something that we'll definitely talk about next week whenever we get into Kevin's character and how he's kind of developing into what we see in the broken brooch with his love story. I did think that that was a little interesting that the exact same element of caring for these boys is something that David views in Kevin as immaturity. Just an example of Jack and David's relationship that (laughs) I had to mention here because it's one of those first scenes that we get of them together and it really does set the stage for kind of that comedic relief that we're going to start getting throughout the rest of the book because honestly that's what their relationship is. As much as they both struggle with things whenever they're together, there is this easy and laid back kind of element to the story and they're also that person for each other that's just like okay nobody else is gonna say it so I'm going to so this conversation they're talking about women and Jack says unlike you I have to work for my dates (laughs) and David says I wouldn't call lifting an eyebrow hard work and that's all you have to do to get a number Jack replies, the only thing you have to work at is remembering whose names goes with the dozens of names you have indexed under sisters in your phone directory. (laughs) They're both ladies' men, to say the least. And 
the fact that they tease each other about the exact same habits that the other person has, it ties in very nicely to where this book ends with them, which I will make sure to talk about that scene next week whenever we close off this story. But I love that it's very quickly setting the tone for the type of conversations we get between David and Jack throughout this story. Another important thing, not really super critical to the plot, but something that kind of sets the stage for where we are in this story moving forward is the fact that Charlotte's expecting another baby. So it's been roughly three years since the events of the sapphire brooch. And here in the beginning of this series, the three-year gap is pretty common for the time between stories, which I know some of you like and some of you don't like. But just to kind of give you a couple of age markers so that you're aware, Elliot is in his early 60s. He's 61. Charlotte is 47. So she's getting up there. And Bram is 50. So Jack's 52. Little Lincoln, I'm estimating, is probably about seven years old because he's getting ready to go into second grade, which would make James Cullen 10. Kenzie and David, Kenzie's 30 and David is 34, which really this blew my mind. Okay. I just put this together while reading this book. So I don't know if I've just been having my heads off in the clouds or what, but I totally, until I actually did the math on this, thought that David was older than Kevin. And I think I even said this in the last McLenna live that I did, that I that David was older than Kevin. But he's not. Kevin is actually five years older than David. So that's very interesting when you look at the dynamic that those characters have. Literally, I had my mind blown by that. <laughs> I was like, wait a minute, am I not doing this math right? And then I asked Catherine about it in one of my questions that I'll kind of get to later that, yeah, Kevin's older than David. Who'd have thunk it? <laughs> Anyway, alrighty, so let's get into the meat and potatoes of this episode. Kenzie Wallace Manning, she's our female lead for this book. And I will tell you what, the second I started reading her point of view, I immediately knew she was David's woman. Immediately, just her personality, her background, everything. I was like, she's perfect for him. I'm terrible. If I read a series, I do not read the back of the book. A lot of people do. Some people don't. I am not one of those. If I get hooked on a series, I don't read the back of the book or the inside cover. I just go on. And so I didn't really know that this was David's story going into it. I kind of had an inkling based off of how Sapphire ended. And I talked last time on the second episode of the Sapphire Brooch about how Catherine does a really great job developing her characters moving forward and setting that person up so that you're attached to that character whenever you move into the next book and you kind of have an emotional connection with that character. So I kind of knew based on how Sapphire ended that Emerald was David's story, but didn't have confirmation, didn't read the back of the book, etc. But like I said, whenever I started this book, that was all the confirmation I needed just based on Kenzie's personality, her background, the fact that she is in the military and she is a tough woman. I was like, if she's not made for David, I don't know who Catherine is going to put with them because she's just perfect. Kenzie went to West Point, And at the time that this book starts out, she graduated from West Point seven years ago and spent five years in the military intelligence corps, including two tours in Afghanistan. She's a tough one. The thing about her time at West Point is I think it taught her how to deal with authority and not be intimidated by 
other people's alpha personalities. I think that makes her perfect for David because he is intimidating for a lot of people. I think we see that in the marked change between David and Jack's interactions and relationship between Sapphire and Emerald is that once you get to know David, he's not as intimidating on the surface, but Kenzie's not intimidated by him from the get-go. That time at West Point really helps her to hold her own in those kinds of situations where a lot of people would tuck their tail and run. I think that makes her a great lawyer. And we see that play out through the remainder of this series. It just really is a key component of her personality. She's extremely witty and funny. She doesn't crack easily under pressure. These are all things that I think her time in the military has taught her, but also just her life growing up in as an army brat, moving around every few years and having to completely make a new set of friends. That has to be really tough. I mean, it's not something that I personally have experienced, so I can't speak to that. But obviously, anybody who went to public school, everybody's been a teenager at one point in their lives. We all know how socially awkward it can be to make new friends. I was not the type of person growing up that made friends easily. And in fact, this is kind of sad, but I ate lunch by myself most days until these really nice girls told me to come over and sit at their table. And then we have been lifelong friends ever since. But I know what that's like to struggle to make friends and then to have to, like, I don't know what I would have done with myself if my dad had been like, oh, my job says that we have to pick up and leave right after I had made those friends. So that had to be really hard. And so because of that, Kinsey has developed this sense of humor that she has and a way of quickly getting people to let their guard down and make friends. And that is also one of the very important elements to her personality that we see grow and we see kind of really at work in this book that it's very quickly established, I feel like. Something that is key about Kenzie's military experience, I feel like, is her time in the military intelligence corps. One of the huge themes and parts of the plot in this book is when we get to talking about espionage and military intelligence whenever it comes to World War II, but they really start laying the groundwork for the ebb and flow of that plot point with Kinsey's character because that's what she did in the military. She wasn't a spy, but she worked in intelligence. So her ability to speak multiple languages, to kind of assess people's personalities and really understand the motivations, what makes people tick. She notices the little things, which is what sets off the red flags whenever she meets Jack and David. So one of the things is how Kinsey describes Jack. She has a very analytical brain. It's so subtle the way that Catherine writes it, but it's very much a part of her character. We see that in how she describes Jack here. She says, styled hair, not a barbershop cut, nicely dressed in quality clothes without stains or frayed edges, new shoes, not scuffed or worn, breeding, manners, wealthy, but understated, easy on the eyes with a voice that can melt ice cream at a Sunday social and a smile, a familiar smile. She's taking all of these teeny tiny little details that someone else wouldn't think anything of and putting all the puzzle pieces together. She's fantastic at solving puzzles and riddles. So we see her starting to do that with Jack. She knows 
that he's familiar. And she's thinking that in all of her research that she's done, she's seen a picture of him somewhere or read something about him. And that's why he seems familiar. It doesn't even cross her mind that he and David are time travelers. In much the same way, she notices something about David's scent. He smells like Downy Unstoppables because (laughs) his laundry has been done in the 21st century. But again, it's a 21st century PNG product. Why would, there's got to be some other combination of scent that makes him smell like that. There's no way that he could actually smell like Downey. So there's a disconnect between what her senses and what her logical mind are telling her. And that's very interesting to kind of see her try to work that out. But it also shows her training in a lot of ways. So I thought that was cool. Another very interesting thing about Kenzie that is really at the cornerstone of her personality is something that impacts her story as we know it much more than I think hardly any other element. The only other element that could probably come close is her relationship with her father. When she was nearly killed by a suicide bomber in Afghanistan, that changed her life forever in some of the worst ways possible. She not only lost her civilian contractor hookup partner. He was killed instantly by this bomb blast, but she also lost her best friend, Trey Kelly, which is just devastating on so many levels. He was the one person, like the one real true friend that she mentions over and over again throughout this book. She's constantly thinking about him. What would he want? What would he think? What would he say? And she's reliving memories that they made together. He was really that one forever friend, that BFF that she keeps close to her. And so whenever we first start to watch this book unfold, it's easy to kind of see Trey as just a memory or her imagining how he would feel or what he would say. It's not until much later in this book that we realize he's not just there as a memory. He's a real living presence in her head, guiding her, giving her support in her moment of weakness. I thought that that was also very creative strategy as far as unveiling these tiny little elements of personality, but also these mystical, mythical elements of the Celtic Brooch series as well. Until we really start to hear Trey talk to her later in the books, it really is just a, oh, she's imagining that's what he would say in this moment. Trey is a vital part of this book. We'll talk about it again, like I said, a little bit later, but just this entire incident of this suicide bomber. Like Jack says, and I think even Kenzie says, It really took away this illusion of indestructibility that Kinsey had. Graduating from West Point, being at the top of her class, being in the military, having this strong sense of empowerment because of that really built Kinsey into the type of woman that she was. But then whenever she suffered this injury and lost Trey in the suicide bombing, that's really when everything that she knew about herself or thought she knew about herself disintegrated. And she had to rebuild. And I think that's really one of the key parts of her PTSD. That's something that gets triggered. This sense of helplessness that she felt whenever she was laying there, bleeding, Trey dying beside her. It's all interconnected very much so with that sense of vulnerability that she felt versus the indestructibility that she was used to feeling. We're going to rewind a little bit and talk about 
Kenzie's upbringing and the things that she experienced there because like all the brooch characters the things that they experience as children are incredibly important to their personalities and their view on life moving forward into the series so if you don't understand the little things or even the big things that they went through in their formative years when they're you know 10 11 12 years old you don't really understand them on a core level like you should as an adult, just like any person. I mean, you can walk up to a person on the street and you can think, oh my God, what a bitch. You don't know what that person's going through. There could be a million things, but you're not gonna understand people's perception of the world if you don't know them from Adam. And so that's what we're doing with learning about Kenzie's parents and her upbringing. Lori says, I was an army brat moving every year or two was hard. Oh, I can imagine. She said, my father went to West Point and we were stationed there for three years. Living on that campus was amazing. Yeah, I would love to visit West Point. It's so interesting. When I went to Gettysburg this past weekend, I met a guy who graduated from West Point. We were talking about how the Civil War is known at West Point as the War of the West Pointers because so many of those commanding officers we're graduates of West Point. Ellen says, wow, I'm about an hour and a half away from West Point. Amazing place. Great history. A friend of mine got married there. Oh, that's cool. Lori's parents got married there on the day her father graduated. That's cute. Kenzie's mother. We don't ever meet her. She passed away much earlier on in the series, but Kenzie's mother was Scottish. Here's where we get into the warped and twisted world of the brooch series where it is such a small world, right? <laughs> so Kenzie's mother was Scottish. She was actually Elliot's girlfriend when they were younger. Of course she was, because Elliot, like every other man in the brooch series, is a womanizer. But this was back in the day, you know, back when they were teenagers and late teens, early 20s, before Elliot moved to the United States. And basically what happened was that while they were dating, I guess they had been in an argument or whatever. They hadn't spoken in a couple of months. But what ended up happening was Lori was disowned by her family. That's the story that Kenzie's dad has kind of spun to Kenzie all these years. We get the true story from Elliot, and then when Kenzie comes back from her time travel experience, she finally gets the truth of what happened. When Lori met Julian, Kenzie's dad, they fell in love pretty quickly, and they decided to elope. At that point, while all of that is happening, Elliot and Lori hadn't spoken in, in a few months because they'd had an argument of some sort. It's unspecified. It doesn't really matter. Lori and Julian left to go to America. Lori's father and her family had had expectations that Lori would marry a wealthy young man from Inverness. It is alluded to that Elliot was that young man, but no confirmation. Elliot doesn't seem to mention it, but given the time frame of it all, that's kind of where it goes. So when Lori's father follows her to America, he discovers that Julian and Lori are married and that Lori is pregnant. There is a big kerfuffle. Lori falls off of the porch, miscarries the child that she has been carrying. When that happens, Lori and Julian are like, 
get out. I don't ever want to see you again to her father. And he goes back to Scotland. That is where the rift comes in between the family because they viewed him as responsible for the loss of their first child. So the baby is not Elliot's despite David and Jack's assumptions or the rumor that is going around. The baby was not Elliot's. It was Julian and Lori's. Because Kenzie, all of her life, has believed that they disowned her mom and just kind of kicked her out and didn't want anything more to do with her, she felt that sense of betrayal and abandonment, and it was kind of instilled in her from the time she was born. So she has this almost hatred of all things Scottish because she's been taught by association that Scotland was bad and there was only pain in Scotland because of what her mom endured. It causes a little bit of tension for Kenzie with David when they first meet, but that's where that tension comes from. That's where that unsettling feeling she gets comes from around him. But it's also where this sense of comfort comes from with him as well. And it takes a while for her to begin to understand that. It's like when you're told the sky is blue your whole life, and then you wake up one day and somebody says, no, it's purple. And you're like, no, it's freaking blue. <laughs> like, this is the kind of struggle that Kenzie has with making herself realize that this thing that she's been holding on to is not really what it seems. Despite that hatred that has been ingrained in her for all things Scottish, she finds herself growing to like David and being comforted by him. And then she realizes, I love talking to him because his voice, his accent reminds me of my mother's Scottish accent and how much I love that and how much that used to soothe me as a child. And so she's slowly starting to realize that she doesn't have a hate towards Scotland. There are just people in Scotland that are there that have not treated her very well over the course of her life. Kenzie's mother died in a car accident, and that is one thing that over the course of this book, we really start to see not only how that impacted Kenzie, but impacted her father. He was head over heels in love with Kenzie's mother, and we really see her remember their relationship with fondness, especially when she sees Sylvia and Clifford later on after she goes back in time. Whenever we're starting to get the description of what happened from Kenzie's dad, I don't know about you guys, but I got the sense that we weren't getting the full story and that he was superimposing his own emotions onto his daughter. That really starts with how he describes this. He says, she blamed herself for her mother's death, claiming if she had been on time, her mother would still be alive. The way that that is worded really, really makes me feel like he feels that way. If Kenzie had been on time, Lori wouldn't have died. We never once get any mention of that from Kenzie's point of view, that she felt responsible for her mother's death, that if she had been on time, everything would have been fine. So that really tells me that that is Julian kind of trying to process his own emotions through the lens of his daughter. After Lori died, Julian became this bitter alcoholic. He's verbally abusive. He's just not a nice person. It was really hard for me to find empathy for this man. I mean, I get it. He's been through a lot. And 
We see how changing an event in history can positively impact someone in this book, which I think is good to see considering how much confusion was given when Jack changed the future for Jack and Charlotte and Emerald. So I think the changes here are a little bit more obvious. And man, I'm so glad because this was really a shitty situation. And Julian grew up in a disgraced family because of everything that his father was accused of doing in Britain during World War II. And that's tough in and of itself. But then he had to go to Vietnam, went through everything that he went through there, which, whew, Vietnam was ugly. People are still struggling with PTSD over that. And I believe I talked about it in one of my season five episodes, but I have family that served in Vietnam and he still has PTSD to this day. It was a really rough situation and, you know, Julian never expected to survive. And when his first wife wrote to him and said she wanted a divorce, so this is Jim's mom, wrote to him and said she wanted a divorce, he didn't argue with her because what would be the point of arguing with her? He didn't expect to live. And if he wasn't going to be alive or if he wasn't going to be around to have partial custody and visitation rights with his son, what did it matter? Just give her what she wanted. That's what she wanted. And that's why he didn't have a relationship with Jim. I can kind of see both sides of it, but also in regards to how he treated Kenzie, that's a completely different story. If what Julian said is true, if that situation is to be believed, which I... I have to take with a grain of salt because of how jaded his point of view was in regards to what happened with Kenzie and that whole situation because we get two sides to that story. We get Julian's side and we get Kenzie's side. And I tend to take Kenzie's word more at face value than Julian's. Let's put it that way. I do kind of have some sympathy for Julian because of what happened with Jim. And he says, you know, he went and saw Jim play basketball whenever he could. He stood outside the church when Jim got married and he snuck into the hospital to catch a glimpse of his newborn grandbabies whenever they were first born. He very much regrets that situation. And I understand that kind of regret, but none of that excuses how he treats Kenzie. And I understand that he wants what's best for her. He wants her to make smart and sound decisions. And the fact that he's an alcoholic doesn't necessarily help his communication skills at all. But at the same time, she dreads talking to her father on the phone. She dreads it. It like ruins her day. And he opens her mail despite the fact that she very much values privacy and he knows that. And she's asked him not to do that. And he does it anyway. And then when he sees her financial investments, he harps on her about that, how she's taking too many risks and she doesn't need to be doing these endurance races. She needs to be studying, yada, yada, yada. He just gives her such a hard time, makes her life miserable. It's no wonder she moved to London to get away from him. So I don't like version A of Julian Manning, let's put it that way. And I think that it's important for us to get this side of him because we experience the same whiplash that Kenzie experiences when she comes back and he's completely different. And it's hard to reconcile the two versions of him based on this one thing that happened in the life of her grandfather, Julian's father. So yeah, it's really hard for me to have any sort of sympathy the way that he requests 
for help from Elliot and David, but then doesn't want to be forthcoming in any sort of information he provides for them and just views it as prying into things that aren't their concern. It really irritates me. Getting back into kind of what makes Kenzie tick a little bit. She loves a challenge. She is not someone who backs down easily from anything that can kind of be mentally taxing or physically exhausting. So she participates in these endurance races. She loves to put together puzzles, but I think what tells us a lot about her is that she is part of the joint law program to earn a JD from Harvard and an LLM from Cambridge, which is so hard. Two of the most prestigious universities in the entire world and Kenzie is attending both of them to get a joint law degree, which it's impressive. It really is. So that tells us basically as much as we need to know about her ability to excel in difficult situations. I talked a little bit about her sense of humor and her use of humor to make people lower their guard a little bit. But where that comes from is her switching schools so often. She said she really started to kind of use this as a coping mechanism as a freshman in high school. So it wasn't something that she really noticed so much in middle school, but then when she got to high school, she really started to realize that by making people laugh, it made them a little bit nicer towards her. So that's where she really started to lean into it, borrowing books from the library that had jokes, remembering jokes she heard from other people and switching them up to suit her purpose. We're really starting to get a feel for how she uses humor in difficult situations. And it's critical to understand that part of her personality whenever we get into her traveling back in time because she uses these coping mechanisms that she learns as an army brat changing schools every couple of years to help her blend in to London in a very difficult situation where there's military intelligence on every corner, spies in every crack and facet of this city. She doesn't want to draw attention to herself at all. She uses the techniques that she's learned as an adolescent and as a teenager to help her blend into her environment a little bit. But she's also the first to admit that her sense of humor and leaning on her sense of humor is not always received well. And she uses that in difficult situations, not only to diffuse a situation, but also to deflect attention from herself or to change the subject. And she says, more than one man had told her to stop hiding behind her sense of humor. So this is something that whenever she's musing about this, she realizes that, yeah, maybe I do lean on that a little bit too much. And that it's okay to be serious every now and then, which I think is great when we see her interaction with David because he is a person that's really viewed as overly serious a lot of the time. And as you get to know him and as you get to see things from his perspective, you really start to understand that that's not all there is to him, but that's how he comes off to people. The way that I divided up this book club is I'm going to cover background information from Kinsey get into Kenzie's story all the way until her and David's story merges. Then I'm going to go give some background on David, go through David's story all the way through where their story merges. And then I'm going to talk about them a little bit as a couple and some similarities that they have in their characters. And that's what I'm going to cover for today. So I did pull some things from later in the book that are relevant to the things I'm going to be discussing today. But for the most part, the second half of the book 
will be discussed next week. So just wanted to let you know that's the format for today. Once Kenzie travels back to the 1940s, she arrives roughly a week before D-Day, May 28th, 1944. And Catherine says in her author notes at the back of Emerald that she knew that she wanted to focus on the events leading up to D-Day, but it was one of the most difficult parts of writing this book that she had to cram an entire adventure and love story into basically what amounts to a week. I can't imagine creating that much character development and story and have it take place over the course of like seven days. It's just, it's nuts. Kenzie lands in London at night in the middle of a bombing raid. You can imagine how this would set off her PTSD. She suffers from PTSD because of what she experienced in Afghanistan with a suicide bomber that killed Trey and several other people that she was close to. It's an aspect of her that it's not necessarily triggered by one specific thing. Her PTSD attacks are extremely realistic, very disorienting, and they can be triggered by sounds, sights, smells. Anything sensory-wise that reminds her and takes her back to that time in her life where she was injured and all those people died while she was in Afghanistan. So in this case, she immediately jumps to the conclusion that she's experiencing a PTSD attack because she smells gunpowder and dust and all the things that you would expect to smell after an explosion. If you experience regular PTSD where you're thrown back into these moments and it's all based off of sensory triggers, yeah, that's a reasonable response for me to think that, okay, calm down, just breathe through it. You're in the middle of a PTSD attack. It's going to go away. Just take a deep breath. Eventually, she starts working her way through this. So she sees all these aircraft that she recognizes, but realizes that It's not modern aircraft and she's wondering where her unit is. That's her immediate response. Find her unit. She's trained as a part of a team. That's how the military operates. I think that's part of why her and David mesh so well together because they're both trained for that. They're both trained to protect their men at all costs, to have each other's backs. That element of their personalities really meshes well together. So that's Kenzie's first instinct is to find her unit. And that's when she really starts to piece together the, wait a minute, this is not the 21st century. Something is off here. And she finds her way to the Rainbow Corner Club. And I kind of had to nerd out a little bit here. You know me, I love to learn about the history that's being covered in these books as I read. So for those of you that don't know what the Rainbow Corner Club is. It was a building near Piccadilly in London where American GIs could go to get a taste of home. It was meant to replicate the corner drugstores of the 1940s, which it's really weird to think about a corner drugstore being the center of social life nowadays because you think of like a CVS on the corner. But that was really kind of like what you would think of as a soda shop in the 1950s, where the youth would go to play pool, to play pinball, to kind of just hang out. And so that's what the Rainbow Corner Club was. It was this iconic sense of Americana in World War II London. And it was a very popular spot for Americans to go. They offered endless Cokes, waffles, hamburgers, donuts, coffee. And that is where Kenzie finds herself. It was put on or sponsored by the American Red Cross. Anytime any American needed anything, they could go to the Rainbow Corner Club, whether it was for first aid or they wanted a sightseeing tour of the city, you name it. And it was so popular that 
local Brits would go and stand outside hoping to gain entrance to the Rainbow Corner Club. It was so full sometimes that they had to close the door. Like they weren't admitting new people. So that was just so crazy to me that this little slice of America on the corner of bombed out World War II London was this haven for so many people. And this is where Kenzie meets the cast of the rest of the World War II section of this book, Christopher Joseph Cav Cavanaugh, which we're led to believe is her love interest. <laughs> then we have Rainer Hamilton and Molly Bradford. So this is kind of her clique that she hangs out with while she's in the 1940s. And they're just so sweet. I love every single one of them. This small but mighty cast of characters is really one of the things that I treasure most about the Emerald Brooch. So she's dancing with Cav. As we learn later on in the book, he's not really somebody to put himself out there. He doesn't dance with all the girls and constantly taking a different girl home every night. That's just not who he is. But he had a bet with Rainer that if Cav danced that night, Rainer would buy dinner. And if he did more than one dance, Rainer would buy drinks. And so... <laughs> <laughs> that was the like the impetus for all of this. This is why Cav drug Kenzie out on the dance floor. But it's so cool to see that what started out as a bet actually ended up being an invaluable relationship between these two. Based on Cav and Kenzie's immediate chemistry, you really do think that, hey, maybe this is how it's supposed to be. Like, they have this instantaneous connection. They're very physically attracted to one another. They have fun and their personalities mesh really well. It starts out how all the rest of the brooch books start out and you're really starting to think, okay, well, maybe I was wrong. Maybe she's not meant for David because remember, I didn't read the back of the book. <laughs> I just had to figure it out. So it was a nice little head fake. I liked how how it seemed like she was leading you one direction and then she's like, oh, nope, we're going this way. <laughs> I believe it's described like my first little red flag, I guess, was that basically Kenzie says she chalks up her reaction to Cav as a biological reaction to stress. And she says that it's very common in wartime that reactions to stress between men and women can lead to sexual relationships that you normally wouldn't jump into. There's just that drive there to have some good time with the nearest man or woman because it's just your instinct. It's your hormones going. That also played nicely into how Molly was explaining how dating customs changed once the war started because it used to be that it would take a year of a guy and girl courting before they would even kiss each other. And once the war started, it was like YOLO. It doesn't matter if you just met this person two days ago, you're making out with them and dancing with them on the dance floor and there were far more hookups and it was just like a looser, more laid back lifestyle because you never knew how much time you had left. So that's kind of the vibe that we're getting off of Cav and Kenzie, but also off of Molly and Rainer and how the youth of that time really took it upon themselves to be more adventurous sexually and socially. So I thought that that was very interesting that we're literally seeing that play out with Cav and Kenzie, but it's a very different feeling from when David and Kenzie meet. And I think that that is an interesting distinction to make because 
David and Kenzie have this instantaneous lightning chemistry. Like they steam up the dance floor. And that's one thing that Jack notices right off the bat is how much chemistry David and Kenzie have. But I think that they're all so focused on the original plan of getting Kenzie, getting her soulmate and going home that it never crosses anybody's mind that it could be a different situation that David and Kenzie could actually be the couple here that needs to be taken back to the 21st century. That distinction there, that need to make a connection with someone, whether that's a physical connection or an emotional connection that Cav and Kenzie have versus that fire connection that David and Kenzie have, that undeniable chemistry. It's a very subtle change in the writing, but you can see it in just how Kenzie thinks about Cav, but it's not in the same way that she thinks about David. Like he's constantly there in her thoughts all the time. And Cav is like, she likes him. Don't get me wrong. Like there's definitely something there. And one thing that I asked Catherine was if Kenzie hadn't made it back to the 21st century, if she had been stuck in the 1940s, could she have been happy with Cav? And she said, yeah, the, if she had been stuck and David and Jack had never come back for her, she definitely could have been happy with Cav. And so that's kind of the vibe that you get. But you also understand based on how they interact with each other, that there's one thing about Cav that Kenzie really doesn't like. And it's more about how she herself behaves around him. It's that he makes her feel extremely feminine and almost vulnerable. And like she's a young, naive woman in need of protection. She almost takes on that persona with Cav. And that's something that she notices about herself that she's like, "Mm, I don't like that. (laughs) I really don't like that. And so that was another key flag, I guess, whenever you're looking for them in hindsight for how Kenzie and Cav are not soulmates and she and David are. Because David, on the other hand, kind of enhances the feisty nature of her, I guess, if that makes sense. He makes the strong parts of her come out, whereas Cav enhances the weak characteristics of her nature. So it's it's interesting how the two men really mirror each other almost in the sides of Kenzie that they bring out. We'll talk about Cav a little bit because I love Cav, but let's see if you guys have anything to say. Janine says her overachieving personality type is directly related to her father's problems. Oh, yeah. I hadn't thought about that, but yeah, that 100% makes sense. Because if you've got somebody who is verbally abusive and constantly beating you down, you just want to be better and better and better, and you want to live up to these unrealistic expectations that they have of you. So 100%, that makes sense. Lori says, yes, David doesn't laugh at her jokes. I think he does laugh at her jokes, but he also takes it for what it is. Like, he realizes that it's a defense mechanism a lot of times. Andrea, I love that history. I didn't know that about the Rainbow Corner Club. I didn't know about the Rainbow Corner Club either, and I guess it's not there anymore, which is really sad. But uh, yeah, I thought that was really cool. Lori says she needs someone strong like David to make her feel like an equal. Yes, I think that as any woman is programmed to out in society, there's that desire to be strong and opinionated and capable, but it's very easy to doubt yourself 
when you get in a relationship with someone who doesn't appreciate those aspects of you. So I think that is kind of what we see with David. When he meets Kenzie, he realizes immediately how strong of a person she is. And it's not just like that, oh, she's such a strong woman. You know, that kind of patronizing. Like, no. Kenzie is physically, emotionally, mentally strong. And we really see that throughout the series as she becomes more of a leader within the clan. Other than Meredith, I think she's probably one of the matriarchs of the clan as we get later on and we get new blood, etc. So we really start to see that toughness in her. And it took somebody like David, who's not afraid of that, to come in and really show her that it was okay to shine. It was okay to be who she is. I think that they amplify that in each other, which is a really beautiful sentiment, I feel like. It's not that Cav doesn't appreciate that. Right after they meet, there's a moment where Kenzie is kind of fighting off all of these overly enthusiastic men that are trying to pull her out on the dance floor. And he kind of steps in and says, back off, boys. And she says, I don't need rescuing. I can handle it. And he says, I'm sure you can, but the Red Cross doesn't allow fighting in here. I suspect you would have had that jerk from New Jersey bleeding on the floor and my dance partner would have been tossed out. So he also appreciates who she is, but the way that he does it is he steps in and he handles it. David would have let Kenzie handle it. That's the difference between David and Cav. Cav is described as a Kennedy-esque, intelligent, and intriguing. David is also both of those, but he's also deadly and daring. And she says sex with him would be memorable. You know those memes or gifs of show me that you're a mom of three kids without telling me or whatever. That's how I felt about this. I was like, yeah, show don't tell me that Kenzie's a risk taker, that she she thinks sex would be memorable with a deadly and daring man. That really highlights that element of Kenzie's personality. It's just little things like that that really start to tell the story of who this woman is. One reason that Cav isn't really a put myself out there type of guy is that he feels like a lot of the women, especially in the Rainbow Corner Club and surrounding areas that really put themselves out there to the American GIs is because they're looking for a GI husband. They're looking for a ticket to America, basically. And he's not interested in any of that. He's like, no, I'm good. But there's something about Kenzie that makes him want to take that leap. And it's funny because they're talking about the type of woman that would put herself out there to become a GI's wife. And Rainer says, I'm not sure what the look is, but if you have it, I don't think he cares. (laughs) Rainer and Cav, I mean, I guess if you go through all kinds of life-threatening situations with each other on a daily basis. You really get to know somebody, and that's the kind of relationship that Rainer and Cav have, and it's very obvious in how they razz each other, a lot like David and Jack do. I love that they're just buddies, and they tell each other like it is, and that Cav is a lot shyer than Rainer appears to be, and so he just, like, kicks Rainer under the table and, like, gives him the evil eye, like, are you freaking serious, bro? Like, shut up. (laughs) I actually do feel kind of bad for Cav in all of this, because 
because he finally like gets up the nerve to approach a girl and then all of a sudden all hell breaks loose essentially and she ends up going for somebody else and I don't think he ever knew what happened to her. I got to thinking about that. I was like, obviously we know what happened because we're with David and Kenzie throughout the rest of the book but the last cab knew Kenzie had been kidnapped and David was going after her and that's really it. That kind of struck me. I'm like, oh, that makes me sad. Like that he just had to wonder what happened to her for forever until they come back and they meet him again whenever he's in his 90s and he finally gets the rest of the story. But that made me a little sad. Something that Kenzie really struggles with, I think, is how Cav talks to her. And it's that romanticized language, right, that we often see in historical fiction romances. It was kind of started to come out a lot in Regency romances. And there's this quote, he says, you're an ethereal beauty and I can't take my eyes off you. Everything about you is otherworldly. And Kenzie's internal monologue is, is this guy for real? (laughs) Which is probably what we would all say if a man that we barely knew said that to us. There's something so like makes you weak in the knees if a guy would say that to you, you know, because it's just not common in the 21st century. I'm all for that changing, by the way, if anybody's listening or wants my opinion on that. I think we could all deal with being schmoozed a little bit like Cav talks to Kenzie. And I think that that is one defining way that we see the 1940s style of romance being distinguished from the 21st century vein. Even Jack points it out. He says the women are so feminine, like they're in skirts and stockings and there's no blue jeans and there's just something inherently sexy about that time period. And I really think that that's brought out a lot in, like I said, how we're talking about the differences in dating customs. I think that that was done really well, like handled really well. We really get the vibe that needed to be gotten. And I guess to to sum it all up, I guess, after half to two thirds of a book of wondering, okay, scratch our heads here. Who's Kenzie meant to be with? Is it Cav or is it David? What is happening here? Jack eventually puts it together, right? But there's a moment where we learn Cav got a what we call a Dear John letter. I'm not really sure when that term was coined or if it's used in other countries. So I'll just clarify. A Dear John letter is a breakup letter, basically, sent from one sweetheart to whatever sweetheart is deployed, telling them, I no longer want to be together. That is a Dear John letter. And Cav was the recipient of one of these letters. His high school sweetheart wrote to him. He somehow found out that she was engaged to marry one of his best friends from high school. He was devastated and Kenzie's really his rebound if you want to look at it that way. So I think that was yet another red flag that something's wrong here. And Jack describes it as, no wonder he'd never seen sizzling sparks between Kenzie and Cab. The pilot wore a sign that read, for sale, broken heart, mending required. (laughs) Poor Cab. He's so sweet. And you know, the kicker of that is that he ends up marrying that girl. So I don't know what happened between her and the man that she was engaged to, whether he was also in the service and was killed or whether it was a rumor. I don't know what happened. But when Cav goes back to the States, he ends up marrying this woman, Susan, and having five kids. Jeannie says, I like Cav, but I think she would have grown tired or bored of him. Yeah, he's a little vanilla, I think, for her, for sure. But 
but he's also very sweet and I think he would allow her to be who she wanted to be, which I think is what she needed. As far as people were concerned when you're looking for a life partner in the 1940s, I think that he would have been the best choice available. Let's put it that way. I know you guys are laughing at me for calling Cav vanilla. <laughs> Lori says he's also from a different time and is used to standing up for women. He doesn't know about Kenzie's background and isn't a modern man. For sure. Yeah, that's just how it was. But it's also one reason that I think he's not Kenzie's soulmate is that he doesn't understand her needs quite like David does. Angela, schmooze me, baby. Heck yeah. Who doesn't want to be schmoozed? I want some good talk. <laughs> Lori, I'm going crazy right now. I have to re-listen to the Emerald Brooch to hear this fantastic story, even though I haven't memorized. <laughs> it's a great story. I love it. Andrea, okay, this is where I have some trouble because Cav eventually marries the girl whose photo is in his plane, right? Yes. Yes, he does. That's what I was just talking about. My next topic is Molly Bradford. And Molly, oh Molly, she's a bombshell. She is what my brother would describe as a pinup girl. Like, that's how I picture her. One of those, or a bomber girl, one of those girls that are painted on the sides of bomber airplanes. That's kind of how I picture Molly, just blonde, curvy, beautiful, but she's also extremely intelligent. She works at Bletchley, which, didn't she graduate from Cambridge? I feel like I read that somewhere. Like, she, she's extremely intelligent, and for a woman to have graduated from Cambridge in the 1940s, that wasn't nearly as common in the 1940s as it was today. So you know she's super smart. And she's also from a wealthy family, so it never really explains what happened to her parents, but she lives with her aunt Sylvia and her uncle Clifford. This is where Kenzie kind of finds sanctuary on her first couple of nights in the 1940s. Sylvia and Clifford are these cute, cute, cute little old couple that's head over heels in love. And there's this one line where Kenzie was saying Sylvia giggled when Clifford came in and greeted her. And he goes, hello, lovely. And she just giggles. And she, she said she got the feeling that Sylvia had giggled every morning of their 50-year marriage. And I thought that was so sweet. And it also reminds her of a time in her life when her parents were that happy and in love. And they would dance around the kitchen. It was so adorable. And it also really made me sad for Kenzie because she did have a phenomenal childhood until her mother died. This couple kind of brings back those memories. It was nice to know that she didn't always have such an unhappy childhood and that her father wasn't always an ass, but it did make me sad for her as well. And so knowing that Molly comes from money, it does kind of explain a little bit how she went to Cambridge. Like that's a privilege that was pretty much reserved for people to have money, but the fact that she graduated from Cambridge and then ended up working at Bletchley as some sort of crypto analyst or code breaker, that's saying a lot. She's described as knowing how to get things done in a bulldozer kind of way. She doesn't even take no for an answer. She just finds her way around it or through it if necessary. And that's how she ends up getting Kenzie the job at Bletchley. Catherine makes no in her author section that it's not necessarily realistic. She understands that security was extremely high at Bletchley and that it's unlikely that anybody would have been able to get in there without ID. But also you're allowed to take some creative liberties in a historical fiction novel. And this was one of those. So I think it, if anything, it really shows how resourceful Molly is. It shows a lot about her character. I did kind of question Kenzie's sanity a little bit. I understood the allure that it held, but for somebody that was so 
concerned about their safety and concerned about military intelligence and blending in, it doesn't exactly shout camouflage (laughs) to try to get into Bletchley Park with no identification. So she kind of set herself up for that pitfall there, as far as I'm concerned. But yeah, Molly's great. It was so great to see her and Cav at the end of this book. It's what makes this book one of my favorites of the series is how it all ends. One thing that I find absolutely adorable is that Molly and Rainer, they just met the very weekend that Kenzie lands in 1944. They met that weekend and they ended up getting married. When we're talking about the way that men handled women back in the day, one of you mentioned that they're just view women in need of protecting, like they're used to standing up for a woman. It really wasn't a thing, I guess. It started being a thing in World War II that women could be independent and could stand up for themselves and do the same things that men could do. That really started to become a thing in the 1940s. But one thing that really stands out about Molly is how she would rather travel the world and live her life. That's kind of the vibe that she's going for. That's why she's not sure that she wants to settle down or get married. She's looking for adventure. And when Kenzie compares Molly to herself, she's like, well, I've had plenty of adventure. I'm ready to settle down and have to renew my driver's license with the same address, basically, is what what she's ready for. And Molly just, she wants more out of life. And that's what Rainer agrees to give her. That's one of the fantastic things about their relationship is that after everything's said and done, after the war, he says, look, I want to be with you. And if what you want to do is travel the world and get yourself out there and have adventure, that's fine with me. Let's do it. And so they do. They travel the world several times over. And I thought that that was so fantastic to see that those kinds of relationships did exist. That sense of equality and giving the other person what they need. It's so great. I love to see that we literally saw the beginnings of this epic love forming and that whenever we get the full story back in the 21st century to learn that they had a long and happy marriage together was so sweet. Lori, he didn't treat Molly like she was weak. He took her need to be independent and travel seriously and made that happen for her. Yeah. Catherine, the real Molly and Rainer are happily married, have a 10-month-old son, and live in northern Kentucky. Molly and Mackenzie are identical twins and both are NICU nurses. Yeah, I read your note about the real Molly and Mackenzie. If you guys want the story, it's in the author notes section of The Emerald Brooch. And it's it's really a cool story. But that's cool. I'm happy that Molly and Rainer are married and living happily ever after. That's so sweet. There was one interesting part of the time spent in London that I thought was really interesting. It's this one quote. It says, A scorched sign had been dragged from the debris and set to the side, resembling a headstone for a tailor's shop. She looked away, hit by a flashback of Afghan faces, stunned and heartbroken by horrific acts of violence, kneeling in the wreckage, and clinging to salvaged property. So this is one of those moments where she's talking about how anything can trigger her PTSD, whether it's a sight, a sound, a smell, you name it. Anything can trigger a memory and not necessarily everything pulls her into full-on flashback mode, but it really does show how tightly ingrained her experiences in Afghanistan are with the person that she is today. And she goes on to say that quite often the only way to survive loss and devastation 
Lillian, as she had discovered, was to hold tight to the memories of the way things had been. This is talking not only about Londoners and how they kind of made do with what they had in this horrific situation with all of the bombings and everything that was going on during World War II, but she's also building that bridge and connecting those dots between what she's seeing happen right in front of her versus what has happened in her own life with all of the loss that she has suffered, whether that be her mother and the chain reaction that has happened because of that loss or her loss of Trey and having to rebuild her entire life and who she viewed herself to be. It's the memories of how things used to be that help you understand and get a grip on who you are moving forward. And so that's kind of mirroring her own mindset with the mindset of Londoners as they started to rebuild and move forward coming out of World War II. But one thing when we're talking about this entire book and really World War II and the focus on D-Day and all the events happening over in Europe around this time, we really get this heavy theme in this book of mortality. And it's not just a focus on war, which obviously when you're talking about war and loss of life, mortality's there, right? But there are little things in this book as well that kind of point to this theme. There's a conversation between Molly and Kenzie where they're talking about, it's the same conversation actually, where they're talking about when dating customs change. And Molly says, men facing death give women their full attention. And Kenzie says, women help them forget about the danger if only for a little while. So again, with that connection that people have that quick chemistry, it's really just about getting lost in the moment, even for just a split second. But when you're also talking about the girl that was killed in the bombing that Kenzie bought all of her clothes off of, Meredith's impending third cancer diagnosis and talk of palliative care, even the aging of Tate and Tabor, these animals that have been through three books with us uh, and we're talking about how they're getting up there in age and they don't have the spunk and energy that they used to have. All of these little things are littered throughout this book to kind of really point at this theme of mortality and really to hammer home how fragile life is and how as time goes on, things change, but there are a few things that stay the same and unfortunately death is one of them. It's just some things are more violent than others. And so I thought that that was a really cool theme to kind of weave in and out of this story about war, essentially. The final topic that we're going to talk about with Kinsey today is the idea of Wizard of Oz, which I thought was so cool whenever you think about Kinsey coming from the 21st century and how Wizard of Oz is really just a staple. It's something that has been out for decades now, and everybody knows what Wizard of Oz is, and everybody's seen it, and Kinsey even talks about how she's seen it dozens of times. But there was something so magnetic and electric about sitting in a theater of people, especially with a bunch of Oz virgins having not seen it before. And that excitement, that palpable electricity in the air. I can only imagine like how that was in the theaters with it being your regular black and white movie. And then all of a sudden when Dorothy gets to Oz, it just pops out into all this brilliant color. That would have been so cool. It's really an awesome topic to kind of throw in there. But also when you look at the brooch series as a sum total, there's 
tons of Wizard of Oz references. It really is a similar experience taking the brooches and going back in time to getting caught up in a twister and landing in a colorful different world full of munchkins and wicked witches of the West and all of this stuff. It's interesting. And so I asked Catherine, I said, a trip through the fog has quite a bit in common with the Wizard of Oz. Did you find a bit of inspiration in the movie book when initially writing Ruby? Or is it simply an era appropriate analogy for Emerald? And she said, the entire series is inspired by Wizard of Oz. There are connections in all the books, not intentionally, but because the movie is so ingrained in my psyche, it naturally comes out. And so that's one of those things where it's such a commonplace thing to reference in pop culture and in our everyday lives that I didn't really even think about it until these parallels were made with them going to see Wizard of Oz. And I'm like, how this is being described. This is so crazy. Like this is literally what she's experiencing right now. So I had to ask if it was intentional or just happenstance. Andrea says, I also believe that in this wartime, most countries except US women were much more involved in wartime activities. I don't know. I mean, women were involved in in wartime activities. They were factory workers and did all kinds of stuff. That was part of the adjustment period for when men came back from World War II because women expected to be able to still earn a wage and go to work and men expected them to go back home and watch the kids and have dinner on the table when they came home. Angela says the follow-up story of Molly Rayner, Cab, etc. would make a great novella since we got invested in them during the story. I would buy that. Just saying. <laughs> yes. I love all three of them. So, and Lily, how they got their their business going and how they met and all of that. I, I would love that. Lori, it was magical to see the film through Cav, Rayner, and Molly's eyes. Yeah, it really was. Angela, Outlander has those overtones as well. Diana even makes those references in Bees. It works big time for time travel stories. Oh, for sure. Yeah. I mean, anytime that you get whisked away into a world that's completely foreign to you, you can automatically see Wizard of Oz references. (laughs) Catherine says, as you know, I can't write short stories. (laughs) Oh, there's a first time for everything. We're going to head on over to talk about David a little bit. We have known David for a couple books at this point. He has a very unique relationship with the Frasers. We don't really get too much information in the first couple of books, like The Last McClendon and Sapphire, about his relationship with Elliot, how they got to know each other. We know that they've known each other for a while, but that's really all we know. So it was good for me personally to get that information. Uh, it turns out that David's mother, Alice, is the caretaker for the Fraser estate and that his father was the caretaker for the estate prior to Alice taking that over, but he was kind of kicked out because he was uh, drunk and a womanizer and he was not very nice to Alice. Old Fraser was like, get the heck out. And then Alice was kind of given the keys to the castle, so to speak. So that's kind of how that all came about. And it's interesting to see that when David goes back and meets 
old Fraser in the 1940s that he says, I won't ever say how I know you, but I will take a vested interest in your life and apply discipline where needed to help your life go in the right direction, basically, which I thought was so stand up guy of him. It really shows why Elliot looked up to him so much in his youth. And it was so cool to get to know old Fraser on that level because we've heard so much about him at this point, whether it's key moments of advice, quotes that he remembers, or just the kind of person that he was. I really liked that we got to meet him in this book and see how he reacted to all of this madness that is going on. I love that Elliot is like, if you get in a pinch, go to my grandfather. He may not acknowledge it at first or believe you, but he will eventually, I promise. David is kind of like, I don't know about this. Like, I know Elliot thinks that he's going to believe me, but he seems really stubborn to me. I don't know if he would believe it, which he ends up believing, but I thought that was really cool. One bit of advice that old Fraser gave David prior to all of this time travel experience when David was young was keep your options open and your powder dry. And I thought that was such a life lesson. Think through all of your options, don't burn any bridges, and make sure you keep the gun loaded in case you need to shoot. If only everybody lived by that philosophy for real. Basically, when David shows up at Fraser House in the 1940s, he finds his way into the house through a cave up in the highlands that leads into the cellar and then comes up through the wine cellar into the kitchen. Old Fraser's waiting on him and thinks that he's breaking into the house. But one thing that kind of causes him to pause for a minute and not shoot David, that's key, is David says... I'm not here to steal your wine, your jewelry, or your rare books. He's pointing out that he knows that all of this is in the house. And he says, nor am I here to hurt you. So Fraser's like, okay, if he knows all of this is here and he's not here to take any of it, why is he here? And that's when David reveals that he has the ruby brooch because Fraser's like, okay, well, then you must be a German spy here to leave a message for somebody. And I'm not having any of that. It's so crazy to me that there are constantly these happenings of people getting mistaken as German spies. That was one of the biggest fears was that you would be interacting with someone who ended up being involved in espionage in some form or another. It's something that we see woven throughout this story over the course of several different plot lines. It was a really real fear for people to open their mouths and say something that could get back to the wrong people. We see Kenzie react violently to this when that general, Major General Miller or or whatever his name was, is blabbing about D-Day plans. And she's like, bro, you don't know who is sitting next to you. You could be telling classified information to a spy and putting thousands of lives at risk. This is not okay. Of course, opening her mouth like that, somehow, some way, how David and Jack end up finding her because she becomes legendary and that she's telling off this major general, this random civilian redhead that nobody has any idea where she came from. So it puts her on a lot of people's radars, not just David and Jack, but probably also military intelligence and Fedora Man. So that kind of thing, like she's so focused on staying under the radar and blending in, but then she can't control herself and ends up making a scene. So that kind of thing, it's like this give and take, this whole 
be careful and watch your back mentality of wartime. What ends up happening in this grand scheme of David encountering old Fraser is that the brooch lore, the myth of the Celtic brooch series, begins to expand. Here we were on book four, brooch three, and we thought, hey, we're at the end of it, right? Because the initial story of the brooches was a laird requested the help of three brothers to help save his kidnapped wife. And as a reward for their services, he gave them each a brooch, a ruby, an emerald, and a sapphire. So this is the third brooch. And we're like, this is it. Okay, here we go. The last story. And this is what David's thinking. This is the last brooch. And then we can seal those things in a lockbox and throw them into a trench somewhere out in the middle of the ocean and never have to worry about this craziness again. Because this has taken a serious toll on David. The whole idea of the brooches, time travel, the whole stress of looking out for the family. He's not having it. He's ready to be done. Literally, this is worst case scenario when he starts having this conversation with old Fraser about there are more brooches. So the entire doorway around this door in the cave is full of slots for brooches, full of them, at least a dozen slots, okay? So we went from there being three to multiplying that by four, and now all of a sudden, only a quarter of the brooches are in play. This has magnificent ramifications, like, holy crap, 12 of them, and he's like, this is don't tell me that is exactly what he tells old Fraser. He's like, bro, I didn't need to know that. Like I could have lived the rest of my life not knowing that there were nine other brooches out there somewhere in the universe. Okay. So I really felt bad for him because he has a lot going on. The poor guy has an ulcer eating a hole in his stomach because of all the stress that he's had to go through as a result of the brooches. Now, all of a sudden, as he's talking to old Fraser, he learns that there are 12 including the diamond. And it's mentioned a black pearl brooch, but I'm thinking that that is just the pearl brooch that we end up getting a couple of books from now. This is something that David just decides to keep to himself until it becomes a thing. And then when another brooch comes into play, that's when he's going to tell Elliot because he knows that there's something going on right now with Elliot and he's not about to make it worse by letting him know that there's nine other potential problems out there in the universe that they're going to have to deal with later. One thing that I did, I was curious about, so I asked Catherine. This is one of those things that I'm like, just to satisfy my own reader's curiosity, I said, how did old Fraser's granda know about the brooches? Because that's how old Fraser found out about it, that his grandfather knew about the brooches. And so when David showed him the ruby brooch, he was like, where'd you get that? I asked, was he a guardian maybe? And what happened to his brooches? Because this is something that becomes more clear. We learn more about out as the series progresses. So I won't go into it in huge detail in case you guys haven't read that far, but I was just curious. And she said, I don't know that we'll ever find out unless David or the twins go back and have a conversation with him, which also I think would be really cool. So <laughs> that's awesome. Growing up, David's father was kind of not in the picture. And then several years later, his father passed away. So his father is no longer living at this point in time, but he didn't have a great relationship with him anyway. And that is one thing that 
him and Kenzie have a lot in common with their terrible relationships with their alcoholic fathers, who both suffered from their time in military service. I believe they both served in Vietnam. So they both came back pretty changed from that experience. I would think that's safe to say. He didn't have a lot of money, him and his mom, and his mom worked for the Frasers. So because they didn't have a lot of money, he learned how to fix things and be handy to kind of get by and to not have to rely on the services of others so much. So we kind of see that in his creativity and his ability to solve problems and just kind of bring things forth from the ether on how to do stuff. He knows how to pick locks and hotwire cars and fix a broken bike and do this and do that. You know, he's a very resourceful person. And I think that that stems from just not having a lot as a child and having to make do with what you did have. That kind of makes sense in a lot of ways. But there's also a quote where he says, fathers and sons and bad relationships had a way of putting trembles into voices. And I think that is referencing when he's talking to Julian about his father and how he didn't have a very good reaction to that line of questioning because it is a really sore subject in a sense of dishonor for his family. And so he doesn't like to talk about it. There's just not a good connection there, I guess. And so David understands that. Hook, line, and sinker understands why that kind of thing would put a tremor in somebody's voice. As far as military service, again, like Kenzie, one of the cornerstones of his personality in that we really see how his organized and methodical nature, his desire to respect authority. We even see how it's quoted as he felt a tightening in his muscles and a strange sense of fear, not fear of the colonel, but fear of war and death and dying. That's what this ultimately was about war. He understands on a deeper level than I think most people would understand what situation he's walking into, how dangerous of a situation it is, how sometimes you just need to do what needs done, but it doesn't necessarily mean it's going to be easy. But he also doesn't appreciate the idea of having to antagonize a superior to get the answers that he needs. Like that doesn't sit well with him either. So there are all kinds of elements to his personality that are coming to the forefront. One particular quote that really hammered home this is when he is putting on his uniform and he says he set his beret on his head canting it left realizing very quickly that he could take the man out of the uniform but he couldn't take the uniform out of the man he was a soldier and always would be whether he was active duty or not and I think that if you ask anybody that has ever served in the military they would tell you the exact same thing that it is really just hammered into you from dawn to sunset every day that you are part of a working system and this is how we do things. And what comes with that experience is a way of holding yourself, a way of behaving and almost a sense of pride in wearing your uniform. And whenever you put on that uniform, you stand up a little taller and you have a sense of confidence about you. From the moment you become a soldier or a Marine or a sailor, whatever, That's something that is inherently part of your personality from that moment forward. Lori says, there's no such thing as a retired soldier. Exactly. And my brother, he's a Marine. He's not a retired Marine. He's not a, um, I mean, he's not in the Marine Corps anymore. But once a Marine, 
always a Marine. And um, I think that anybody who serves in the armed forces would tell you the exact same thing. So we're going to get into his story a little bit. So one portion of the David storyline, we're getting out of the personality section and into the plot line section, is the impact of the events of the Sapphire brooch on Jack. Because we really see a marked change in his character between Sapphire and Emerald. And it has a lot to do with his own PTSD that he is suffering from and dealing with. It's really just a matter of him learning and growing as an individual. But there's a moment, I was going to read it to you guys. They're having a conversation where we learn a little bit about what happened over the course of kind of the blank space that happens when Charlotte is kind of trapped in the house, I guess, because there's there's quite a bit of time there where Charlotte's just kind of milling around and not really doing anything, I guess. So they're talking about Kinsey and her Harvard-Cambridge joint law program thing. It says, impressive. It's not an easy program. When I was at Harvard Law School, I knew a couple of students who were accepted. Top of the class, but socially boring. Jim's sister could have big boobs and long legs, but I doubt either of us would find her appealing. I don't know about you, but I'd never hit on a friend's sister, even if I found her attractive. Jack doubled over laughing. Did you hear what you just said? He continued laughing until tears streamed down his cheeks. Incensed, David said, I never hit on your sister. Jack's laughter slowed to a chuckle. Keep believing that, but I was there, remember? Well, except for the weeks I was incarcerated. David glared at him. Sometimes you can be the biggest dick. Yeah, you've told me that before. I think the first time was when the Yanks allowed you into my cell. David took the steps two at a time. I want to punch you for what you put your sister through and hug you because you were still alive. I'd rather not relive those days right now. What else do you know about Jim's sister? They can joke about it, but at the end of the day... As the story progresses, we really start to see this profound impact of how that time affected Jack moving forward. And he even understands that the change in their histories wasn't necessarily a bad thing because he came back to the same life he had always known and the life that Charlotte lived in her alternate timeline actually made her a happy and more well-rounded individual. He realizes that he messed up, but he doesn't regret that decision or that action because it made Charlotte a happier individual. And when we really get into the idea of changing history, like that was one thing that the reason that Charlotte and Jack went after Bram and Sapphire anyway was because they didn't want Bram to change the future. Well, here we are again in a situation where we may be changing the future. And once again, Jack is like, no, we're not changing the future. Are you kidding me? And he's bristling at the morality of this situation because at what point do you decide, oh, if they saved two people's lives, bring them on forward. But if they saved 20 people's lives, you have to leave them there. Who made us God? When they bring Bram into it and get his opinion on it. He's like, look, you can't force somebody to come back and expect them to be happy. I never wanted that. From the minute I woke up in the hospital, I wanted to go back to my time. And for you to think that this situation with this man that Kenzie is going to be with is any different. I mean, you're completely naive. It's not going to be any different. Meredith is on the same page with Jack and Bram. I tend to agree with them. If they had just picked Cav up and brought him back, he wouldn't have 
have been happy. I mean, obviously, we know he's not even Kenzie's soulmate anyway, and that would have had massive ramifications because he's Trey's grandfather and Kenzie would have died in the suicide bombing. I mean, it's nuts. Yeah. So be careful about changing the future is basically the moral of this story, as if we didn't learn that in the Sapphire brooch. And I get that David and Elliot being in the positions that they're in within the clan, they have to make a lot of tough decisions. And I'm not going to say that they don't. And I'm not going to say that I understand or would ever want that pressure. But those decisions are questionable. Like, morally ambiguous. Very much so. Whenever we are faced with these tough decisions that the clan has to make, you can 100% see how Jack's previous experiences impact him one book at a time. Because as we get further into the series, there are other things that happen to Jack and it impacts his character. And I think that's why he's one of my favorites, because we can see him grow over the course of the series versus over one book. When we really start to see his PTSD poke through is when they get into the 1940s. There's a lack of communication in comparison to what they're leaving in the 21st century. And one of Jack's biggest fears is getting left and not having anybody to come after him. Nobody knows where he is. This is something that he experienced in Washington in 1865. He thought he was all alone and that he was going to be executed for the assassination of President Lincoln because nobody knew where he was. Nobody was going to be able to get him free. No matter how he approaches it or how he tries to calm himself down, he still gets really worked up at the thought that he could get abandoned again and nobody knows where he is and nobody's going to come to save him. And that's a very real fear for him. And David sees that. It's part of the reason that he's like, was this the right choice for me to bring Jack? Most of the time he's okay, but then he gets triggered and he gets freaked out. And do I need somebody like that here? Another person that I have to look out for? Because David already shouldering a lot. And to have to worry about somebody freaking out like that, I think it's more than he kind of wants. But we also see how how capable David is of shouldering that burden and doing what needs done when he goes after Kenzie after she's kidnapped and he leaves the brooch with Jack. And he says, if you don't hear from me by this date and time, take the brooch and go back because I will either save Kenzie and we will meet you where we're supposed to meet you or I'm going to die in the attempt basically. And at that point, there's no need for you to stay. David gives Jack that extra security to make him feel like he has a little bit of his own agency and he can take control of his life and his own destiny in that way and that he's not stuck. So he doesn't have to worry about Jack freaking out. He'll just go home and then David will leave a message for Elliot at Fraser House and they'll get back some other way. So I did like that we kind of see how Sapphire impacts Jack on a character level throughout this story. But something else that we see quite clearly is that David is all in on this. There's a couple of different ways that we notice it. He's smitten with Kenzie even before they meet. And I don't know if any of you like notice this, but even when he's diving into her personality and really starting to get to who she really is deep down, he's fascinated by her, by the things that she's been through in her life, her accomplishments that she's made. And that really starts to build in him this impression of this woman that he has. She kind of just sticks with him. Then whenever he meets her, he's blown away. As much as he had her built up in his mind, she 
surpasses all of his expectations and blows him away. That doesn't happen. David McBain does not get caught off guard, especially when it comes to women. To see that was really kind of a cool experience. Even before they meet, there is a line where it says, looking at her in full dress uniform in this picture that he had gotten of her, red hair pulled back in a tight bun and her hazel eyes dancing in delight. David had his answer. He would cross the Rubicon for her. For those that don't know, I know most of you probably know, but crossing the Rubicon is a saying that goes back to Roman times where it was kind of the dividing line for Rome. And if you crossed the Rubicon with any sort of military force, that was considered treason. So basically in layman's terms today, if you hear the phrase crossing the Rubicon, it's the point of no return. And he's saying that he would cross the Rubicon for her in a heartbeat. But also something on a much more subtle level that not only tells you David's level of commitment to this story, but also to who his character becomes in the future is this tiny little moment. It's like a blip when they are first searching Kenzie's apartment. It's right before they leave and Jack is asking David if there's anything else that they need to get from the apartment. David opens up his senses. It's something that he akins to his warrior instinct. But when he does this, he basically relaxes into almost like a meditative state, I feel like, like just completely opening his mind and all of his senses to his surroundings. And when he does that, he hears and and sees these things. He says, air raid sirens, bombs, Churchill's draw sounding like a man with rocks in his mouth, swing dancing, screams, soldiers, gunfire, cigarette smoke, rations. He shook his head to clear away the visions or thoughts or whatever had settled upon him. So this is something that is hinted at already in book four that we don't really get any enlightenment on for several more books. But that aspect of his personality is already extremely prevalent in hints at his supernatural capabilities. There are a couple of other characters, Meredith and James Cullen in included that have this ability to kind of open their senses to the world around them and get more out of those surroundings, I guess. So I thought that that was cool that, like I said, we don't really get answers to why he's able to do that or what exactly it is that he's experiencing for a few more books, but it's already there for sure. The mission, should you choose to accept it, (laughs) for those of you that have seen the Mission Impossible movies, I sometimes feel like these books are like an extension of the Mission Impossible series. Seriously. There's an interesting element to this because there's so much going on. It's not like the Sapphire Brooch where they knew what they were getting into. Going back to the Civil War, basically Charlotte found her own way back within a couple of days. This is different because Kenzie's full on missing and nobody knows where she's at or what's happening there. And they have to put together the pieces on their own. So when they realize that they're most likely going to be going back to World War II in London with all the bombings and stuff, that's an intense situation and electing to send people in is akin to a commanding officer sending somebody in to an extremely dangerous situation like covert ops or undercover. It's not going to be easy. I think Elliot is reluctant to send 
bring somebody in anyway to that kind of thing. But then add in what he and Meredith are going through with the potential resurgence of her cancer. It's not something that he wants to be dealing with. So he fully puts the situation in David's hands, releases all right to control over the operation and says, I trust your judgment. Go save Kenzie. Do it as quickly and as cleanly as possible. It's a grab and go mission. Grab her soulmate, bring them both back and we'll figure out everything else later because they just don't have the mental energy and the resources right now to be able to handle that. They are going through all of Kenzie's possessions, her apartment, her emails, her research for her thesis. They have a pretty good idea by that point considering that she has so thoroughly researched her World War II Churchill and London and all of that, Bletchley even, that they are pretty confident that it's 1942, 43, 44 London. So they're not telling Meredith. That's one thing that Elliot doesn't want. He doesn't want Meredith to have something else to worry about. And this part of Elliot really frustrates me. So you remember how we were talking about how Calf comes from a time in the 1940s when men had to stick up for women and etc, etc. I really feel like Elliot is that way with Meredith in that he just wants to protect her and keep her out of harm's way. But Meredith is not having any of that. Like she wants to know everything. And that's just her personality. We learn about that in The Last McLenna that she's used to being in charge. She's used to having all the information that she needs to make a decision. She doesn't like being kept out of the loop and she sure as heck doesn't like feeling like she is less than capable of handling a situation, especially at the hands of Elliot. It sets a fire in her whenever he tries to keep her out of something. She confronts David and Jack and is like, I know y'all are up to something and you better tell me what it is because if I figure it out, somebody's in deep shit. And I love that David's reaction is just to call Elliot and be like, you need to come in here because Meredith is on the warpath. And eventually it all comes out what their plan is. And we learn that Meredith has known all along that Kenzie exists. She learned this from Jim's wife one night when they were having a ladies night and she had had a couple of glasses of wine too many and she spilled the beans. But in doing so, she made Meredith promise that she wouldn't tell anybody because Jim didn't want anybody to know, especially Elliot, that Kenzie existed. So she didn't say anything for like three years or some shit like that. Like an unbelievable amount of time that she just sat on this information and didn't say anything, which I guess I understand because whose business was it really? And that's kind of her argument. And I love that when Elliot tries to get all pissy about it that she didn't tell him, she says the last time I looked at the definition of the word silence, it wasn't spelled (laughs) E-L-L-I-O-T-T. You don't need to know everybody's business and stop acting like you do. So I like that she puts Elliot in his place. She doesn't let him treat her like she's made of glass, which is great. I love seeing that dynamic of them. But also Meredith wants David to realize if he's going to take this on, Kenzie is not your average damsel in distress. Okay. She says, you're going back in time to rescue a soldier who is exactly like you. Be prepared to meet a woman who will not bow at your feet and that will be a first for you. I'm sorry I won't be there to watch the fireworks. Meredith knows Kenzie is a fully capable and competent woman and that she is very much like David in that way. She's resourceful and extremely, not hard, I wouldn't say she's hard, but she 
she can get shit done in a matter of fact sort of way. And that David needs to be aware of that going into this, that he's not going in to rescue some helpless little woman who can't handle herself in tough situations. Like Kenzie can and will handle herself, defend herself, whatever needs done. Meredith, before anybody, like she's miles ahead of the game and she's like, I'm sorry, I won't be there to watch the fireworks. Like she knows that something's going to go down with these two. I don't think that she quite knows that it's like a soulmate situation, but I think that she knows that David needs that sort of connection in his life for sure. So David and Jack go back to London and they land basically right where they need to in true brooch fashion and within a matter of hours have found Kenzie and Cav, Molly and Rainer. So very quick as the brooches would like to have it, I suppose. So I guess we shouldn't be surprised, right? One big thing that we're going to talk about tonight because I wasn't really sure where I needed to fit it in, but I wanted to talk a little bit about Elliot and Meredith's plot. I do think that it's important to note that in the structure of this series, that regardless of what's going on with the soulmate story, it all comes back to Elliot and Meredith. There's always some sort of Elliot and Meredith or clan plot that's happening outside of the soulmate story. This time, we are dealing with a health crisis with Meredith again. And whenever I first read this, I was so upset. (laughs) I was really upset. I was like, we are not doing this again. Like, I barely survived the last McLenna and my emotions are shredded from the sapphire brooch. (laughs) And now Meredith is sick again. Are you kidding me? And I know, like, that's exactly what these characters are saying whenever they react to this situation. But it's just so... (laughs) And then I was reading, you know, when Meredith first talks to her doctor, when he gets back to her and says that the scans have come back and they show lesions on her lungs. They're pretty sure based on her previous cancer diagnosis that the results of any biopsy are going to show metastatic breast cancer, which is just horrible. So awful. When Meredith breaks down and Elliot finds her crying on the office floor, like curled into a ball, and she's saying, God, take my hair, my hands, my feet, take my vines, but please don't take my life. Don't take me away from James Cullen and Elliot. I literally put in my notes, yep, I'm sobbing. I'm fine. (laughs) I'm not fine. I'm not fine, guys. Oh, God, it's awful. It's so awful. Elliot is strong for her because he has to be. But also, I think that is his only alternative. Like, that's the only action he can live with because his only other option here is to contemplate a life without Meredith a life where he has to raise their son on his own. And he's not willing to accept that. So he will be strong for her and he will fight this and he will be there for her because he has to be. And I think that that is such a full circle moment from where we started with his character, completely avoiding making the healthy decision. I mean, I guess he's always there for the people that need him. And that's one of the key things about his character. But especially in The Last McClenna, he had a tendency to 
avoid the hard stuff, I guess, and like push it to the back burner because it was easier than admitting that there was a problem and trying to fix it. And to see that evolution to his character, I guess, throughout the series and see him become the leader of this group of phenomenal people is really a cool journey to watch him go on. So it was good to see him shine in that moment, but also I was so mad at Catherine. (laughs) I'm pointing the finger. I'm tired of them having to go through these moments where they think they're going to lose each other. Because it's so hard to watch or read or whatever you want to call it. I mean, it's a great story. Don't get me wrong, but it's mentally taxing and emotionally distressing (laughs) anyway. But it all ended up being okay because it wasn't cancer. But the hard part about this is when they're talking to Chris Lyles, a character that we came to know in The Last McLenna, he's saying that if it is metastatic breast cancer, which he agrees with the assertion that Meredith's doctor doctor in Edinburgh said that given her previous diagnoses, it will likely be metastatic breast cancer. Elliot's asking what the treatment options are. And to have to be this man who looks your lifelong friend in the face and says, there is no treatment plan, that it's going to be palliation. That's it. Those are your options. And it's likely going to be six to nine months. That would be the worst part of being a physician, giving people news like that. It really sucked to watch Elliot react to his friend's opinion in that way. I mean, and he tries. He's like, look, we need to wait for the biopsy to come back. I can't tell you anything until we have conclusive results in our hands. But Elliot presses, Meredith presses, they want to know. And then they don't like what he tells them. But yeah, I mean, it does suck. I'm not going to sit here and say it doesn't suck. But I got kind of mad at that point because I'm like, you're pressing him into a situation where he doesn't want to give you this terrible news. He said, we need to wait. And you didn't want to wait and you didn't like what you heard and you got mad at him and you stormed out. What did you think was going to happen? What did you think was going to happen? Okay. (laughs) But anyway, it ended up being Caves disease or histoplasmosis, which is a fungal infection that is ingested through a fungus in the decay of bat guano, which whenever bat guano dries out, it can kind of be inhaled as a dust. And that's where you kind of get these lesions in your lungs that are histoplasmosis. So that's what it ends up being, which is fantastic. But it also weaves in one of my favorite elements of this story, the cave. From the very beginning, when we start to get David's perspective on the cave, he and James Cullen are very much, they don't like it. And you can chalk it up to David's claustrophobia. He got stuck in a cave when he was a little boy and had to wander around for hours until he was able to feel his way out because his lantern died. And so now he's claustrophobic. He does not like caves. Okay, so you can chalk up David's dislike of the cave to his claustrophobia and his experience as a child. James Cullen also does not like the cave. And even as a young 10 year old boy who has no idea how medicine and illness really works, I mean, he's extremely intelligent, but it's a bit beyond his capacity at that point, I think. He still doesn't like the cave and he blames his mother's sickness on the cave. These two things are alluding to these two men or boy, whatever. I mean, James Cullen is a man by the time we get to where the series is now. So I'll preface it as a man. These two men and their supernatural capabilities. That's one thing that the cave alludes to. But also 
it's kind of this through line of foreboding. You just kind of have an uneasy feeling about the cave, period. As it's mentioned, and it's associated with Meredith's illness, and it's associated with David's fear of small places. A cave in general has like, it's damp and dark and there are creepy crawly things that live there. Like caves are not necessarily the best, like they don't have the best connotation when you think about a cave. But then when you learn about what's in the cave, the doorway and the nine additional brooches to the three that already exist within the series, there's an expanded awareness of what this unknown element of the cave represents. So I love that this is kind of something that just ebbs and flows throughout the story until we get to the expansion of the brooch lore and how this cave actually represents an expansion of the world in general and is a representation of the unknown, which I really thought was clever. I'm a big fan. Our final sort of multi-topic of tonight is David and Kenzie and their soulmate element. We're going to talk about the soulmate debacle we're going to talk about things that they have in common. And we're going to end on a fire topic, which is their physical chemistry. Oh, Catherine says it's about time for them to go through something else. <laughs> no. No. I can't handle it. Not spoiling anything, but I about died in Sunstone. I just can't. I get it, but it doesn't mean it's easy. Angela said if it was all hunky-dory, it wouldn't be a story, right? I know. I know. When we get to talking about the whole soulmate element of this series, this is one thing that really makes this story unique because of the head fake element of it in that you're led to believe that Kenzie and Cav are made for each other and that this is the soulmate interaction that everybody has been waiting for, right? And even David, David and Jack and Elliot and Meredith and everybody involved in the planning of this rescue mission believes that they are going back to save Kenzie and bring her soulmate forward into the future. And David and Elliot have a conversation right before David and Jack go back where David says, whoever the lad is, he's meant to come home with her. And Elliot says, you may be right, but don't close your mind to being wrong. The brooches work in ways we don't always understand, but we can't doubt their purpose. Meaning the brooches have a reason for being the way that they are, whether that means bringing someone forward, bringing Charlotte forward when she rescues Bram, or getting Kenzie stuck in 1940s. There is always a reason for what happens. And I think those words that Elliot says to David that say, don't close your mind to being wrong, is the only reason, really, that we get the existing story that we do. Despite the fact that David has this constant niggling over what happened with him getting hurt so bad with Charlotte, there's a small part of him that is still open-minded. And there's a part of him, no matter how hard he tries to shut it off that has this deep-seated desire for Kenzie. He can't help but think to himself, stop being an arse. She's not yours. But then there's the other part of him that's like, but she doesn't act like a woman that's in love and I really like her. But then you've got the same part of his brain that's like, oh my God, why is this happening again? <laughs> like this poor guy just 
cannot catch a break, it seems like. And he's so frustrated by the situation. He doesn't understand why he can't keep himself separate from what is happening around him. And he's always had this capability in his life to remove himself emotionally from the situation and do what needs done. He's always been able to do that. It's what makes him such an amazing special forces officer, whatever you, whatever he did. He has always had that capability of just shutting off his surroundings and moving forward at all costs. And he's not able to do that with this particular situation. And it's something that Jack picks up on before David even realizes it himself. Jack gives David a hard time because he's acting like a loose cannon, which is an interesting change of events because normally it's David giving Jack that lecture. But they have this conversation when they get back from dinner and they're sitting in the hotel room and Jack is like, what the hell was that? (laughs) And he's like, I've hit on enough women to know when I'm watching a guy hit on a woman, you know? Like, she's not yours. This is not your love story. What has happened to David McBain and when are you giving him back? (laughs) Like, this is not okay. He's suggesting that they may even need to switch assignments and David may need to take on Cav and Jack may need to take on Kenzie because David is too emotionally invested in this situation for it to ever work out. It's definitely interesting to kind of see that dynamic, but what frustrates me so much is that every single one of them against Elliot's advisory is having a closed mind and not realizing that what they're seeing in front of them is actually happening. And Jack multiple times even is like, what is going on? Like, this is not okay. He's pointing out that he doesn't see fireworks between Cav and Kenzie, but he sees fireworks between David and Kenzie. And He's just not putting two and two together that that's how it's supposed to be. There are supposed to be fireworks between David and Kenzie, but everybody's so one track mind about it that they're missing the point. I cannot tell you how frustrated I got rereading this story this time around because it was so blatantly obvious after having read it like four times, you know, like you see everything on the third or fourth read and you're like, how did nobody see this for so long? (laughs) But again, without the drama, there is no story, right? So we just, we keep going. (laughs) Anyway, so Meredith puts two and two together before anybody else. Shocker. I mean, Meredith is leaps and bounds above and beyond everybody else when it comes to intuition. As much supernatural ability as several of the other characters have, she is just... Yeah, like I said, above and beyond that. And so she knew immediately when Jack came back, within a couple minutes of talking to Jack about what happened, she was like, oh, so they're perfect together. That's the soulmate situation going on here. It's very funny to watch that happen. And again, I'm like, I go back to the whole burning curiosity about where Meredith's intuition comes from and like that inherited trait. So I am dying to know where in her line that all comes through. I asked Catherine, I said, at what point did it become clear to you that this was David's love story? Or did you know going in that Kenzie was meant for David? Do you think Kenzie could have been happy with Cav? This is where I asked that. And she said, I knew going in that this was David's love story. I made him a third wheel again, but one with a happy ending for him. Could Kenzie have 
been happy with Cav. If she'd been permanently stuck there, then yes. Intentionally making him a third wheel. <laughs> it's so funny because David is such a ladies man, yet he's repetitively made a third wheel in these stories. <laughs> Ironic, I guess, is the word that I'm looking for. And I did, like, I felt really bad for what happened with him and Charlotte. So I'm glad that he gets his happy ending here. Catherine brought up the point of Kristen being in her line. Yeah, I guess. I never thought about that because I guess because she died really before Kit and Colin really got together. So I guess I didn't really think about it. And we didn't really get to see her as as an adult or what her capabilities would look like as an adult. So, but yeah, okay. I'll leave it alone. (laughs) That's valid. Now we're going to get into some of the things that David and Kenzie have in common. They have a love of music in common, which I think music is the language of the soul. I really do feel like if you have a a love for music, you can use that to kind of build a bond with somebody and bring out your emotional side, I guess. And David playing the saxophone is 100% how he communicates his emotions on a level to Kenzie that really just, it strips down all of his barriers and lays his soul bare to the world like, here I am, this is me. It's beautiful. And to see how Kenzie responds to that really shows almost how much she values that kind of thing. Whenever she's dancing and listening to the music, she she loves the 1940s era for its music and she can get lost in it and just dance for hours and forget all of her troubles for a little bit, I guess. And so she understands how music can be used to communicate between two people or between a crowd of people and like bring people onto the same level, I guess. It made total sense to me that if they were soulmates would both have a love of music. There's a moment when it says she was lost in the heart and soul of music that reflected the pain of the country, yet it remained upbeat and positive. It was music that defined a generation, music she loved. And I got to thinking, so what does that really say about Kenzie? If she loves the jazz of the 40s that reflects pain, but also also is upbeat and positive, what does that say about her? That's exactly what it says about her. That despite all the hardship that she would go through in her life, she still finds the beauty in the world and chooses to remain optimistic and move forward always. Her and David are also professional problem solvers. And we see this on both sides of the coin with them. We see it in David trying to figure out who Kenzie is, where she would go, and why she would go there, what decisions she would make, and kind of the reasoning behind that. The way that he meticulously breaks down every facet of her life to learn new things about her shows how he is able to analyze a situation and put all the pieces together. We see it in Kenzie over and over again with her desire to work at Bletchley, the way that she carries a freaking Rubik's Cube in her pocket on her keychain, And that she's always up for a good puzzle. She's always willing to get her hands dirty. And this is one of the things that not motivates her, but piques her interest a little bit when she meets her grandfather, which we'll talk about next week. She didn't know much about him, but she did vaguely remember that conversation that her father and mother had all those years ago about him being a traitor. She said that what she had heard didn't mesh with the man that she had met. And so it kind of made her curious as to if that was all 
of the story and that she may be willing to hang around Bletchley a little bit and in the 1940s to kind of get the full story because it was a puzzle in need of solving in her opinion. That whole puzzle solving element is actually a really huge theme of this book that kind of moves through it in waves. I feel like every element of this story has a puzzle to solve. It's one of the great keystones of mystery novels in general and I think that this story more than some feels more like a mystery novel I guess than others. So they have these initial impressions of each other that I thought were key to our understanding of how they see each other. David initially really really irritates Kenzie. I think that's because A she had kind of been acclimated to the 1940s just a little bit and he stood out to her in a way that others didn't because she describes him as McBain's movements were slow and deliberate yet there was no tension. His chin and head were up and his back was straight. Cav, Jack, and Rainer were all alpha males, but McBain was the top dog in this group. He reminded her of the army rangers she knew. There was no shortage of testosterone flowing through those veins. She immediately recognizes that sense of empowerment. Like David literally walks around knowing that he is capable of anything. He can solve any problem and it's something that he prides himself on. And I think that that sense of confidence in him makes him stand up a little taller and walk with a a cock to his head almost that really can be construed as arrogance. I think that's what Kenzie picks up on that she's like, I really don't like this guy. And I'm like that. If I meet somebody that's arrogant, I'm like, "Mm, you can keep walking, buddy. That and the fact that he's Scottish really just kind of, she's not interested. And when he starts telling the punchlines to her jokes, she describes it as more of a war of wills than a fun game with him. And she doesn't like losing. She's very competitive. So that's why she gets so irritated with him whenever that kind of thing happens. On the flip side, David's first impression of her It says, he squinted at the picture of a woman, her face in shadow, sitting in the front row of cadets. This is when he's seeing her West Point graduation picture. Dressed in white gloves and a skirt, gray jacket with maroon sash, sword at her side. The look of a competent woman, a woman of strong character and mind. It was Kinsey. And from her body language, she wasn't the type of woman who would shuck responsibility and disappear. That's what intrigues him. She's very different from any other woman that he's met and any other woman that he spends a lot of time with. They both intrigue each other, but they're both trying to pretend throughout a good chunk of this book that they don't intrigue each other like that, which leads to this unbelievable sexual chemistry that David and Kenzie have. It's the Celtic Brooch series, right? And every single one of these couples have a fire sex life. I'm not going to stand here and say they don't, but David and Kenzie are up there. are way up there on the list of sexual tension and chemistry. Even other characters make note of this and like tease them about it. It's something that starts from the very beginning. Despite the fact that David thinks that Kenzie is for Cav and David is Scottish, so Kenzie's not interested. They can't stop thinking about touching each other, holding each other, kissing each other. And then it kind of just morphs from there into this desire, this need 
need for each other. And that's when you really start to be like, oh, these two are the soulmates for sure. Because Kenzie doesn't have that with Cav. She has that initial stress reaction. But then once she meets David, mysteriously, that desire to sleep with Cav fades. So that's really your key. Okay, here we go. These two are the ones that are meant for each other. Whenever they're dancing, it's almost, it's described as like an orgasmic level of just sensory overload. Every neuron is firing. They use that sexual chemistry in every single way possible as a coping mechanism, as a way of showing their emotions and their feelings for each other as a release. And so that's what their first encounter ends up being, a release of tension and frustration and and everything that Kenzie went through in the London cage, she needs that moment of intense passion to override all the horror that she's experienced. And in their second encounter, it's more of a sensual coming together of the minds and the body. But again, still this intensely passionate and hot moment that defined David and Kenzie's relationship over and over again throughout the series. There's something about this relationship that I have a tendency to think every single couple is different in this series. You can see the little differences, but there's also some big differences. And so I asked Catherine, I said, what do you think sets David and Kenzie apart from other couples in the clan? And she said, there was something from the very beginning that set them apart. Now that we know who David is, and I'll leave the rest out of that sentence in case you guys haven't read the Bloodstone brooch. Now that we know who David is, it makes sense. My muse must have known the truth. So for those of you that are caught up through the series, you'll get a kick out of that. And she says, Kenzie is a true warrior. David and Billy would have been a good match, but I don't see anyone other than a warrior partnering with David. And I am 100% yes on that. It's the lawyer and puzzle solving part in Kenzie's personality that makes her a good match with David. And then she says, David and Kenzie are like one person and two bodies. That's what I was getting at by telling you guys about all of these similarities that these characters have and that you don't necessarily pick up on until somebody points them out A, B, C, D, E, F, G, but they're definitely there. I think that that's true of all characters in this series in general, but there's such a unique mix of commonalities between David and Kenzie. There's a sense of humor mixed with their sense of duty all tied together with their sexual energy that really shows how they fit together as a fantastic mesh of their personalities. That's kind of where I guess I will leave today in that they're just perfect for each other in every way. And I think that they fit better together than some couples do in the Brooch series. I feel like other couples have to work at their relationship a bit more and we'll definitely see one of those relationships in the Broken Brooch. But David and Kenzie are not one of those. Once they get over the final hump at the end of Emerald, they are together forever. It's not really even a relationship that they really have any massive hurdles like that. You know, I'm sure they have disagreements because they're both type A personalities. But yeah, I feel like it's such a good story. And I love David and Kinsey. They're one of my favorite couples of the series. Barb says, that mystery element may have been why this was my favorite book in the series so far. Kinsey and David have many of the same characteristics and interests. Andrea, oh my god, I may not be able to wait for audio bloodstone. I'm so intrigued by what you just said, Chelsea. (laughs) 
it's a goodie. I didn't wait for the audio. I had listened to all the other books on audio first, but I could not wait. <laughs> when I went to Scotland in August, I read it while I was there. I mean, what better opportunity to catch up on your reading than a seven hour plane ride, right? <laughs> and it was worth it. It's so good. I'm so excited for the audiobook. Alrighty, guys, I will head off of here for the day. Next week, same time, same place. It will be 2 p.m. on December 17th that we discuss the remainder of the Emerald Brooch. Hope to see you there. Until then, you guys stay safe out there. Have a good week, and I'll chat to you next week. Bye!